And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. How many of you guys like tests? Yeah, that usually gets a chuckle because basically nobody does. But you know there's one thing worse than a test. And that's not being prepared for a test. Uh, Whether you're in school or not, guess what? Tests are an inevitable part of life. Uh, In real life, unlike school, tests often hit without warning. Now in school, we do have pop quizzes. So that's kind of what I'm talking about here in life. We get these pop quizzes. You go in for a routine checkup, but the doctor looks concerned. He says, hey, uh, we need to run some tests. And the report comes back and it's cancer. That's a test. Or you go to work as usual and the boss calls you in and says, hey, we have to lay off a few employees. And suddenly, that happened to me in 1985. Debbie and I had been married for three months. And I'd been working at TMH for four years. And I got laid off. Praise God, it was only for three months. And they called back and said, Dave, you want your job back? I said, are you kidding? Yes. And I went back to work and ended up working there 16 years. But point being, three months married, I'm without a job. That's a test. Or maybe you get a call and you find out that a loved one has passed away in an accident. We could multiply these tests all morning long, couldn't we? If you just look back in your life, you know, you've got dozens that you have encountered over the years. And guess what? We, we love to think there's not going to be any more, but there is. There are. There are, going, there are going to be more. The question is, how do we prepare for these unannounced tests so that we pass the test and not fail? How can we be ready so that we endure and, and maybe even triumph and not get wiped out by life's tests, life's trials? In our text, Jesus and the disciples, they are on the brink of the supreme test of their lives. Before the night is over, Jesus is going to be betrayed, he's going to be arrested, and then early the next morning, he's going to be nailed to a cross. The disciples, they're going to be scattered, fearful, confused. Peter himself is going to openly deny even knowing the Lord. Well, as we know, Jesus was prepared and he passed the test. The disciples, they were unprepared and they failed. To an outside observer, It might seem that the disciples were prepared for the test while Jesus was not. Think about it. The disciples boasted of their strong commitment to the Lord, even to go to prison with him or death. Of course, that was Peter. Um, They weren't anxious or distressed. Matter of fact, they were calm enough to sleep that night. But Jesus, and here understand that I'm speaking from the perspective of an outside observer, not from God's perspective, he looked like an emotional wreck. He was extremely distressed and troubled even to the point of death. He was in so much agony that his sweat came out as blood. He cried loudly with tears, Hebrews 5, 7 tells us. You would think looking on that the disciples were uh, were prepared and that Jesus was the one falling apart and that the disciples were about to fail terribly. And Jesus was about to endure victoriously the greatest trial that anyone who has ever lived had to endure. So what made the difference? Well, if we do not pray as Jesus prayed, we will fall into temptation just as the disciples did. 
And let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer now. Father, we thank you for another opportunity just to be uh, taken by your word. We pray that you'd speak the truth into our hearts, that we would understand and see the contrast between the preparedness of Jesus and just the absolute failure of the disciples. And Father, it all has to do with prayer. So God, speak to our hearts now, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus told the disciples twice, pray that you do not enter into temptation. So those are your options. You either pray or you're going to enter into temptation. Now, the human race originally fell into temptation and sin in a garden, didn't they? Garden of Eden. Well, here we have Jesus, the last Adam. He resisted temptation and he overcame the enemy in another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, if we want to overcome our trials and temptations that hit us, uh, we've got to learn from the Lord how to pray as He prayed. Now, first I want to say a word about trials, just kind of in general. Number one, the trials that we face, they can either be a test that strengthens us or temptation <laughs> that brings us down. Every child that we face is either a test of our faith or a temptation that can cause our faith to fail, depending on how we handle it. Now, in James 1, 13 and 14, it tells us clearly that God does not tempt anyone to evil. Rather, we are tempted when we are carried away and enticed by our own sinful desire. So, well, we can never blame God for our own disobedience and sin. But Scripture also tells us that God tests His servants. He uses tests to refine us, to strengthen our faith, to deepen our love for Him, to teach us to obey Him uh, no matter what the cost. Now, the same trial can either be a temptation to sin if we yield uh, to the flesh or a test to strengthen our faith if we walk in the Spirit. Now, Satan tries to use those trials that we encounter to bring us down. There's no doubt about that. God wants to use them to strengthen us and to establish us. Now, if I were to say to my children, or, or say to you that my children are obedient, you may say, prove it. So I say, kids, eat your ice cream. And they gobble it down with great delight. And you'd say, well, wait a minute, that doesn't prove anything. That's not a real test of obedience. And you'd be right. But if I said, eat your spinach... Or clean your room. And they observe that test uh, cheerfully, obey that test cheerfully. Then you could rightly say, okay, maybe you, you do have obedient children. At all times, we are subjects to, uh, subject to various tests and temptations due to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, some times are more intense in terms of temptation than others. When the, word, uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil all press in on us in the same situation, we're in serious spiritual danger. This hour that Jesus and the disciples faced was especially under the power of darkness. That's the last thing he tells them. Your time is here is the power of darkness. Satan wanted to destroy God's plan of salvation by tempting Jesus to avoid the cross. The Jewish leaders, they represented the world. They wanted to get rid of Jesus so that they could maintain their place of power and prestige. There were some internal temptations that Jesus faced that made the cross absolutely reprehensible to him. The disciples, they wrestled with fear and confusion. So this was an extremely intense trial. 
And Jesus is our positive example of how to endure while the disciples, they're our negative example as to what to avoid. So number two, just as Jesus prayed and resisted temptation, so should we. There's a great mystery to hear as to how the Son of God could be so distressed, so troubled, to the degree that He even needed the ministry of an angel. Probably it was that theological difficulty that led some early copyist of the Greek New Testament to leave out verses 43 and 44. Your Bible may have an asterisk on verse 43 and verse 44 and say some of the earlier manuscripts do not contain these verses. And those verses are, of course, about the angel ministering to him and him sweating drops of blood. What do those things point to? His deity or his humanity? His humanity. He needed help. Right? The early church was battling the Arian heresy. That denied the deity of Christ. And perhaps a copyist wrongly thought that he would protect the deity of our Lord by leaving out these verses that seemed to emphasize his humanity. And some scholars argue that they're not part of the original text in Luke, but they admit that they come from a very early tradition. They should probably be included. Now, sweating blood... Uh, that's evidence that Jesus was going through just an immense emotional, physical, and spiritual trial in that garden. The mystery here, which we will never understand, is that Jesus is both undiminished deity and perfect, full humanity in the same person. His two natures are neither mixed nor diminished. Now, we're fully human, so for us to understand what it means to be fully human and fully God, yeah, that's beyond us. This is one of those things that's beyond our pay grade, so we just trust God. He says it so, so we believe it. Now, in our text, Jesus' deity, it comes through by showing him to be in command of everything, including the details of his arrest. Judas didn't catch Jesus by surprise. He knew what was coming. His divine power is seen in him healing the servant's ear, just touching it and healing it. Now, he could have struck dead all of his enemies right there if he had wanted to. But his humanity comes through in the agony that he endured in the garden as his holy soul contemplated burying our sins. Jesus' prayer life, which is demonstrated for us here, it stems from his perfect humanity. He is our example of how we, as weak human beings, should be totally dependent upon God. Prayer is the language of dependence. When we fail to pray, we fail to depend on God. Now, there's five things that we need to apply that come from Jesus' prayer there in the garden, and we need to apply them to our prayer life. First, A, Jesus prayed out of a great sense of need. That's his humanity. Jesus was weak, and he knew that he was weak, so he prayed fervently. Now, if you think that it sounds like heresy to say that Jesus is weak, well, I would say that it sounds like heresy to deny that Jesus was weak because then you're denying his full humanity. Now, perhaps because most of the major occults, they deny the deity of Jesus, we have swung so far to that side, defending his deity, that we kind of forget that, oh yeah, he is fully human as well. 
Hebrews 2.17 states, he had, talking about Jesus, he had to be made like his brethren, that's us, flesh and blood, in all things that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Although Jesus did not have a sin nature as we do, and so he was not tempted by his own sinful lusts, the writer of Hebrews tells us that he was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So he remained sinless. Now, of course, this wasn't the only time that Jesus was weak and needy. Think about how he came into this world. How did he come into this world? A little baby born in a manger, right? It's amazing that we all enter this world so weak, helpless, and vulnerable, totally dependent on the care and protection of our parents. Jesus came into this world just like that, weak and defenseless. Even as a grown man, Jesus was often weary, hungry, and thirsty. You remember on one occasion, uh, he actually fell asleep. He was so tired that he fell asleep in the back of a boat in the middle of a storm on the lake. Do you remember he, he was thirsty and he asked the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman there, hey, will you get me some water? Uh, he was hungry enough in the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Hey, just turn these stones into bread and, and you can eat something. On more than one occasion, Jesus was moved to tears, showing us that he had normal human emotions. He suffered, from the, he suffered the pain of rejection, both from the nation and from Judas. And of course, he suffered physical pain and death itself on the cross. So what was it that led Jesus to be in such agony in the garden? As I said before, we're human. He's fully God, fully man. There's no way that we can fully enter into what Jesus faced. And to be honest with you, we're kind of treading on holy ground here. The thought of death itself must have caused Jesus great agony. Do you know what death is? Death is God's curse on this fallen world. It's an ugly reminder of the fact that we are subject to sin and judgment. So Jesus must have recoiled as he thought about having to die. But I believe the main source of Jesus' agony was this looming realization of what it would be for him, the sinless Son of God, one with the Father from eternity, to bear the sins of his people on the cross. And we looked at these two verses last week, but they're, they're worth repeating. Isaiah 53, 6 uh, says, All of us like sheep have gone astray. We've each turned our own way. The last part says, But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. What was Jesus? He was sinless. And yet, he is fixing to bear the sin of the world. Paul expressed it like this. He said, He, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Now, the extent to which we are holy, think about this, the extent to which we are holy is the extent to which we recoil uh, in hatred from sin. So the holier we are, the more, more we recoil when we encounter sin. Jesus was perfectly holy. He would have been utterly horrified at the thought of being defiled by sin. Understand, when we sin, we're defiled by our own sin. And it's our own sin that defiles us. Do you understand it in the Old Testament? Uh, if you touched a dead body, you were unclean. 
You had to go through a cleansing ritual and then wait till the evening, which was the next day in the Jewish doing of things, and then you would be clean. So, but just by touching a dead person, you were unclean, let alone committing sin, right? Purposeful sin. But Jesus was sinless. He had never sinned. And here he is about to take on the sins of the world. We, we, we can't even begin to fathom what is going on in Jesus. He's about to be forsaken by God the Father and to endure his awful wrath against sinners. Jesus knew that the full fury of Satan's domain of darkness would be unleashed on him as he went through his trial and as he hung on that cross. Now, knowing that Satan is such a hideous and, and powerful enemy, we've talked about that before, Satan is powerful, Jesus was aware of the intense battle that he would shortly face. So it was out of his great sense of need that Jesus prayed. What does that say about us? Our awareness of our own great needs should drive us to prayer in every situation. Well, B, Jesus prayed intimately to the Father. He addressed God as Father. Matthew 26, 39, and 42 reports him repeatedly calling God, My Father, my Father. Mark 14, 36 says that he cried, Abba, Father. Are you familiar with that? Abba is an Aramaic word. It's a, it's a colloquialism. It's, it's a, a term of intimacy that children would use. to call, It'd be like Papa, <laughs> right? Uh, call it, calling your dad Papa. Uh, that's what he's talking about here. Jesus instructed us to pray to God as our heavenly Father. Very important. A Roman emperor was, was once parading through the streets of the imperial city, city enjoying a victory celebration, and, and Roman legionnaires lined the parade route to keep the, the back the, the cheering people, to hold them back. And at one place along the way, there was a small platform where the royal family sat. And as the conqueror approached, his youngest son, who, who was just a little boy, uh, he jumped down, he burrowed through the crowd and, and made his way and went to run out to meet his, his dad. And, and somebody grabbed him and says, you can't do that. And it was one of the guards. And he said, don't you know who's in that chariot? That's the emperor. And the boy quickly responded, he may be your emperor, but he's my father. You see, that little boy had the privilege of access to the supreme ruler of the Roman Empire because he was related to him as his son. Well, even so, as believers in Christ, we have access to the sovereign of the universe as his children through faith in his son, Jesus we can draw near, as Hebrews tells us, knowing that he will welcome us as a father welcomes his children. We'll see Jesus prayed honestly, presenting his desires before the Lord. Now, even though intellectually Jesus knew God's eternal decree, which including, included his dying on the cross for our sins, his humanity recoiled in horror from the thought of bearing the Father's wrath. Now Luke greatly condenses the narrative here. The other synoptic gospels, they report that he, that he prayed it repeatedly. Uh, the fact that he fell first to his knees and then on his face in Matthew 26 shows the intensity of feeling that Jesus was expressing in his prayers. In other words, Jesus wasn't covering up the intensity of his emotions, trying to look spiritual by being calm and collected and unaffected. No, he poured out his soul honestly to the Father, even to the extent of asking that somehow, if possible, God's eternal decree might be altered. 
And John Calvin asked, how could Christ ask for something impossible that God would alter his decree by sparing Jesus from the cross? And he says that Jesus, like other godly believers, in a time of strong emotion, was not contemplating the secrets of God. He wasn't deliberately inquiring into what was actually possible, but he was carried away by the earnestness of his wishes. Calvin compares it to Moses and Paul. Do you remember that uh, they, they both asked God to blot them out of the book of life? If he would simply save the nation, he said, just blot me out, take me out, save the nation. And of course, God doesn't do that. And Calvin says, this therefore was not a premeditated prayer of Christ. This is the strength and violence of grief suddenly drawing this word from his mouth to which he immediately adds a correction, <laughs> Calvin notes. We'll look at that in a second. The point for us is to pour out our souls honestly before God, knowing that he cares about how we feel. Peter tells that explicitly. Cast all your cares, all your burdens, all your anxieties on the Lord because he cares for you. Well, D, Jesus prayed submissively, seeking the Father's will above his own. After asking that that cup of suffering be removed, Jesus quickly added, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now, even though Jesus honestly prayed his feelings, he quickly restrained himself and brought himself into submission before the Father's perfect will. Now, God's will is often the most difficult path for us in the short term. But it always results in great blessing in the, wrong, in the long term if we obey. Hebrews tells us that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. Well, E, the result of Jesus' prayer was that he was strengthened to endure victoriously. So the father sent an angel to strengthen him. Spurgeon remarks how extraordinary it seems that the Lord of life and glory, a God of very God, was so weak that he needed the ministry of one of his own creatures, an angel, to strengthen him. Now, I don't know if the angel came with a special message from the father or if it was just his presence that reassured Jesus of the father's care or maybe he mopped his brow and gave him a drink of cool water after his fit of, you know, uh, sweating blood. Somehow, we don't know, the angel strengthened Jesus in response to his prayers. Now, the fact that he was strengthened is seen in the story of the arrest. Here the disciples fall apart while Jesus remains composed and in control of the situation. He's not surprised in the least by Judah, Judas, but rather confronts him one last time with his terrible sin. Uh, are you really going to betray the Son of Man with a kiss? While Peter swings the sword, missing his... Have you thought about that? Peter missed. He caught an ear, but where was he aiming? He's probably aiming for the head, but he missed. Peter's not a... He's not a soldier. He's a fisherman. But he lofts off Malchus's ear. We know from another gospel, his name is Malchus. And so uh, he, re he, he calmly, Jesus, he stops that violent response. He said, no, 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 this is, this is not the way it is. And he heals that severed ear. That's, that's his last miracle, by the way. While this armed mob surrounds him, Jesus calmly confronts the hypocrisy of the Jews Jewish leaders. 
They easily could have arrested him in the temple anytime they wanted had they not been afraid of the people. And then, of course, he goes peaceably with them to his final destiny. The point is, Jesus' prayer beforehand strengthened him to endure victoriously trials and temptations after he prayed. Now, usually I'm afraid we don't pray until after the trial hits. Now, we should pray then, but we'd be much stronger if we had been praying beforehand as well. Well, let's just look for just a second at the negative example, the disciples' failure to pray. That's number three. The disciples give us this negative example in that they failed to pray, and what happened? They succumbed to temptation. In contrast to Jesus, who was aware of his great need, A, the disciples were oblivious to their great need. Jesus warned them twice to pray so they may not enter into temptation. If they knew what was coming, I mentioned this last week, if they knew what lie directly ahead and that the hour of darkness was upon them, they probably would have stayed up and prayed. They didn't know that. Uh, they were blind to the real danger that was quickly approaching, and so they didn't pray. You know, if we could only see ourselves as the Lord sees us, we'd pray about everything. Because we would see how truly needy we are about everything. We can't even draw our next breath without the Lord's mercy. We're not going to have food on the table at our next meal if God doesn't provide. Uh, we can't serve Him unless we rely on His strength. You remember in John 15, Jesus says, Apart from me, you can do how much? Nothing. Will be the disciples were operating on the human plane, not on the spiritual plane. They were allowing the flesh to dominate the spirit. They were tired, they were depressed, so rather than praying, what did they do? Sleep. Remember, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So they sleep. Um, when Jesus was about to be arrested, Peter woke up and he started swinging his sword. When Jesus was led away, although Luke doesn't record it, Mark does, what did they do? They all scattered. And that was fulfillment of prophecy, right? Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's exactly what happened. So they were operating on the human plane. If they had been in prayer with Jesus, they could have responded in the Spirit. So again, the, the, there's only two options, prayer or temptation. Cyprian an early church bishop said, If he prayed who was without sin, how much more it becometh a sinner to pray. Think about that. Jesus was sinless. Perfect God, perfect humanity, and he prayed because he needed God. We're sinners. How much more should we be praying? Years ago in Central Africa, the gospel reached a number of tribes, and there were many new believers uh, and just as new babies cry, newborn babies cry, these new believers uh, began to cry out to the Lord in prayer. And they had no church building, so they cleared out a central spot in the jungle where they could all gather for prayer, for corporate prayer. And soon there were trails from many different huts coming to this central location. And whenever a convert seemed to be losing his first love, to be losing his enthusiasm, other believers would admonish him saying, Brother, the grass is growing on your path. You know what that means? They're no longer coming to gather to prayer and the grass is growing. So my question for you is, is the grass growing on your path to God? If it is, guess what? Jesus says you will face temptation. You're going to enter into temptation. Prayer or temptation, that's the options. Pray 
that you may not enter into temptation. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful again just for a chance to look into your word. And, and we're confronted with some stuff this morning that uh, probably hits every one of us in the face who know you and are following you. The fact that, yeah, we maybe are not spending enough time in prayer. Father, uh, especially when things are going good, we get lax. And Father, we all know that that doesn't last. So to be prepared for what's coming, we need to be in prayer with you. So God, I pray that you would move our hearts to that end, Father, that we would spend time with you and we ask it in Jesus name amen now if, if you if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you're sitting out there and you realize that you that you're, you're lost you don't, you don't know God okay you may not know how to describe it but you know that you do not know God then guess what you need to pray to God first and foremost to save you he, he he's our Savior right ask him to forgive you of your sins trust Jesus Christ the work that he did on that cross over around 2,000 years ago now the work that he did on that cross that pays for your salvation that's the only way into into heaven you have to repent that means turn from your sin and you turn to God I saw someone read something this week and it said you can't turn north without turning your back on south right if you want to head north well you're back same thing with sin. When we repent from sin, we turn to God. It means we turn away from sin. And that's the essence of salvation. Turning from sin, turn to God. He'll save you today. I encourage you to do that. If you're a believer, I hope you've just been challenged to consider your own prayer life. Do you need to be spending more time in preparation? Now, some of you are going through some hard stuff, and guess what? You're on your knees regularly. That, that shouldn't just be us when we're in trouble. That should be a routine posture for us to be on our knees before God because we need Him. Boy, whether we realize it or not, my goodness, we need Him. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, CrawfordvilleFBC.com.